0: For your support, it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, September eleventh, twenty seventeen. All right, looking at my notes. There is no unified theme today. Themeless, themeless fighting for the faith. It's going to be all over the map is the best way I can put it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to, you know, slow down. Slow down! Stop! (laughs) Open up that Bible, would ya? (laughs) You know, that's what we do do here. Uh, (laughs) uh, Anyway. Can you already detect frustration levels in my—yeah, okay. So, yeah, so we tell people to slow down, stop, actually open up the Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of really crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to, you know, open up God's Word to compare, contrast with the most popular— Pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God— And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is being (laughs) spewed is probably a good way of putting it. Being put out there for consumption by people is not actually biblical. It's not what the scripture says or means or anything of the sort. And over and again, people are being deceived, having their itching ears scratched. They're not being called to repentance of their sins. Faith in Christ. For the forgiveness of their sins, uh, exhorted to bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, things like that. And instead, they are just being led away into some of the more stranger things. Anyway, so at the beginning of the program, noted the fact that today's episode does not have a unified theme. Yeah, I actually work really hard to get all of the different segments of fighting for the faith to pull together and uh, get all of the horses pulling in the same direction that 's kind of the idea, and so the theme could be an apologetic theme, it could be an epistemological theme, it could be a doctrinal theme, uh, it could be kind of basic hermeneutics kind of theme uh, it uh, It all depends on how all the different pieces work together today 's episode he <laughs> the horses are all going in different directions. Today is one of them stinking pot episodes, a uh, popery if you would. And uh so yeah, the best thing I can do is say on this particular episode the uh, the the uh normally and this is kind of the other thing is is that oftentimes we kind of ease into it a little bit easy and then start to ramp things up and then by the time we get to the sermon review you know it's going to be you know p- put your antenna up and see if you're you know and you know to pay attention track in your bible and you know maybe take notes things of that nature today's episode is um yeah it not only does it have a theme i think we actually start off um in uh, in more difficult territory <laughs> And work our way into somewhat easier, you know. So by the time we get to hour number two, you're going to be going, Uncle, Uncle, yeah. <sighs> so uh, let's talk about <laughs> what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. All right, looking at my program notes here. Okay, we are going to begin with Doctor Bruce Allen. Doctor Bruce Allen recently at a conference that he was at speaking at says that Christians will literally experience body transformations in the end times. <laughs> yeah, oh, sorry, transfigurations. I read my notes incorrectly. That's right. We're going So apparently we Christians are going to be experiencing literal body transfigurations and uh, <laughs> since there's no unified theme, let me see if I can explain ahead of time what you should be listening to on this. And and the idea is this, is that when we get into a biblical text, now Dr. Bruce Allen's going to attempt to make it look like this is actually taught in Scripture. But <clears throat> when you're engaging in sound biblical hermeneutics, it is oftentimes necessary not just to pay attention to the context. Now, yeah, we use our th- uh, three sound rules for biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context. Uh, but sometimes the context you're going to have to pull back just a little bit to figure out what is being referred to. So it is an issue of referent. It's a a referent issue. So we will... Uh, be uh, taking a look at that as far as a biblical referent in the book of Isaiah. Then we're going to listen to Sean Bowles, kind of the same concept here. We're going to be paying attention to biblical referent in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as he tries to explain to us that uh, we need to uh, learn how to uh, hear God's voice via impressions and downloads, and that'll be a shorter segment. Um And then just to kind of add insult to injury, somewhere in there we will uh, switch gears and do a uh, <laughs> a uh, money-grubbing televangelist update. And uh, listen to Ken Copeland as Ken Copeland k- uh, takes authority over uh, Hurricane Irma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you've been paying attention to the news, um, <laughs> you know, uh, clearly, uh, his attempts at taking authority over Irma did not result in Irma, you know, skedaddling and heading out to sea or anything of that nature. Far from it. And uh, then to end the hour off, we're going to listen to James Gall. This is kind of a, uh, this is a little bit more of a difficult uh, segment here. But the idea here is that as Christians, which miracle narrative do we? find ourselves? What's the story that we find ourselves in? And and, uh, and we're, we're it's important that we pay attention to this one. It's a little subtle, somewhat abstract, but I think I'll, I'll somehow land on my feet. And then hour number two, we're going to hear a Louis Giglio sermon. He was recently in Montana and uh, preaching on his new book, Goliath Must Fall. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just going to be a completely miserable twisting of the story of David and Goliath, which is what everybody do's do do's do. <laughs> yeah, it's what everyone do's, man. You know, just saying. So you know, I'll explain it when we get into hour number two. So uh, with that, I I think we should probably just go ahead and get into the program proper. Make yourself comfortable. So the first segment's going to be a prophetic holy orders ne- network information. Exchange Syndicate Twin Spin. So let's do this.
1: So I was having this wedding and and
2: we uh, we well we didn't have we shaba mm, shaba yeah 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 shaba.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's uh, Heidi Baker. Shaba. Strange days for you. All right. So uh, something as well, almost as strange as hearing ba- Heidi Baker say Shaba. Is uh, Dr. Bruce Allen from the uh, recently concluded On Earth as It Is in Heaven conference and his bizarre twisting of Isaiah chapter 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll let him begin to explain and then obviously we'll try to clean it up. Here we go.
3: God said he's light and he's life. Yeah. Life is in the light. Yeah. Do you know what medical scientists discovered some years ago?
0: No. W- what have they discovered?
3: Is congealed
0: light. Um what? Hang on a second here. We need to hear the referent.
3: Blood is congealed light.
0: Uh-huh. So medical science has discovered that blood is congealed light. <laughs> I have never seen those um, <laughs> those scientific journal articles. I'm not I don't recall ever seeing that in the news, okay. So
3: what happened is, when we fell from the place of grace that Adam, the first Adam had, where the life that was in him was the light of God, to that place of fallenness, that...
0: Um, I think you're twisting some text in, like, putting stuff together that doesn't belong together.
3: It congealed, and now the life was in the blood, but in Christ, you have access. Amen.
0: Uh-huh. Did, I, did any of that make any sense to you? Let me let me try that again. Let's let's see if not interrupting and will help me understand what it is he's saying and why are people saying amen to this?
3: God said he's light and he's life. Life is in the light. Yeah. Do you know what medical science has discovered some years ago? No. Blood is congealed light. Uh-huh. So what happened is. When we fell from the place of grace that Adam, the first Adam had, where the life that was in him was the light of God, to that place of fallenness, that light was congealed, and now the life was in the blood. But in Christ, you have access. Amen. Start seeing yourself as he sees you.
0: As congealed light. I... <laughs> um... I, uh... <laughs> I don't recall in all of my times reading Scripture and, you know, reading the Church Father's Church history, the Reform, you know history of the Reformation, the theology of the Reformation. I don't recall any theologian, apostle, prophet, or reformer ever really zooming in on this uh, we-need-to-see-ourselves-as-congealed-light. Yeah, I've... I've, I've <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'm just not well read enough. You know, if I have only read those scientific articles that talk about blood as congealed light, which kind of begs the the question. Hang on a second here. I'm gonna just do a little Google search. I mean, Google would know about this, right? Blood congealed light. Let's see here. Evidence for blood being congealed light. Okay, now what I did for the search, I put congealed light in quotes so that it was looking specifically. Only five hundred and seventy-six results. <laughs> One of them from the Lunatic Outpost. <laughs> I don't see any science articles initially coming up for that. <laughs> ha! ha. Uh, oh here's an interesting like the occult teachings of Gwen Shaw. Yeah, um, when somebody can send me an actual, you know, like, Journal of the American Medical Association or science, a a peer-reviewed science journal that proves that blood is congealed light, I'd like to see that. But uh, let's let's continue, okay?
3: Because transformation is going to take place in human bodies in this last hour.
0: And they're all saying amen to this. I just was this conference in Colorado. I'm just asking, you know.
3: I'm telling you this: the powers of the age to come that they talk about. One of the things we're about to see on a forerunner company of believers.
0: All right, forerunner company. So this puts this into the NAR doctrine, the the doctrine of Joel's army. This this thing that God is supposed to be raising up for the a big end times billion souls harvest thingy it's
3: transfiguration that is permanent what
0: (laughs) gotta back this up again I what is this guy saying hang on a second here let's try this again
3: come that they talk about one of the things we're about to see on a forerunner company of believers is transfiguration (laughs) that is permanent.
0: I mean Jesus's transfiguration wasn't permanent during his earthly ministry. I mean just his glory popped out for just a wee bit of time there on the mount of transfiguration. Um where is he getting this? Okay. So, um I do I sound like I'm at a loss for words? Well, the reason for that is because I'm at a loss for words. There's people saying "Amen" to sentences that don't make any sense, biblically or even like from like lucid, logical, whatevers. Okay, so permanent transfiguration is coming. Okay, do you have a biblical text for this? By the way, he does. All
3: right, we'll, we teach more on that in our school.
0: Right, yeah, so sign up for his school, pay him money, he'll teach you more about how to have a permanent transfiguration from congealed light to light, okay.
3: So I'm going to finish with this and then we're going to pray. Good friend of mine, some of you know him, Regner, but he's he's a fanatic for the word and he does word studies and we, we love talking about this and doing these did an exhaustive word study on this scripture, Isaiah 60. And then with the studies I did, I added some things. And um, you can't buy the Bible like this. You have to do your word studies.
0: Okay, so <laughs> he says you can't buy your Bible like this. So whatever this translation is of Isaiah 60, he claims that that it is a result of word studies. Now, it just so happens that, you know, I have a degree in biblical languages, and uh, I read Greek, and I read Hebrew, and, you know, stuff like that. And so um, I have just prior to today's program, I went ahead and took a look at the Hebrew there in uh, Isaiah chapter 60, And um, I have found that both the ESV and the NASB do a fine job, and I mean this, a a very good job of capturing what's going on in Isaiah 60. So before we let Dr. Bruce Allen confuse us into a, a complete obscurity of reality, let's take a look at what the text actually says. ESV, here's what it says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. Now, you'll note I use the word Yahweh whenever I come across what's called the Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton is the Hebrew four letters for the name of God, and I think it is best translated or you know transliterated as Yahweh. Yeah, I think that's a good way of working with it. But anyway, so so the glory of Yahweh has arisen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness and uh, the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you and they shall come up with the acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Now you're going to note here that this part of Isaiah literally sounds, and there's a good reason for this, eschatological. Now, it is not purely eschatological. No, it's not. Um, it, it is talking about kind of the mystery of salvation and the glory of Christ, and it is definitely talking about the nations and a time when Christ has returned and people visibly see his glory. That's That is definitely in play here. But watch what Bruce Allen does with this text based on extensive word studies. Uh huh. Yeah. If you don't know Hebrew, doing an extensive word study is not going to help you with rightly translating. By the way, the ESV does a good job of translating. Let's take a look at the NASB, 1977. Another fantastic. Uh, very literal translation arise shine for your light has come the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you for behold darkness will cover the earth deep darkness the peoples but Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising so you'll notice this is reflected light because the glory of Yahweh shines upon us watch what Bruce Allen does I hope you're sitting down
3: this is what Isaiah 60 says. Pay attention to this.
0: No, actually, what he's about to say is not what it says.
3: It says, stand up. That's equivalent to arise and shine. It's a command. It isn't, well, you know, if you feel like it today and you're not, you know, too busy.
0: Right, yeah. So put this in your calendar, you know, put it on your to-do list. Stand up. Accomplish. Confirm and decree the day, the break of the day,
3: that moment when light overwhelms Darkness. Uh, What? That light has been introduced to the world and reached maturity in you. Where are you getting this? And the splendor, the weight, the glory, and the honor of the Lord now irradiates you.
0: Oh, no, I've been irradiated. (laughs) I think being irradiated may not be a good thing. I just, you know, saying...
3: This is the hour we've come to. The Lord gave me this word for 2016, and he said,
0: no, 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 no. The Lord did not give me this word for 2016. Be
3: progressive, and as this unfolds into the final days, you're going to see God's people. You're going to distinguish them clearly. The world can't see it, but we're going to see each other as light.
0: Ah, so it's transformation. Transfiguration is coming. So among Christians, if you, if you're walking down the street, you'll be able to identify the other Christians, at least the ones in this end times army thingy, uh, because that you will see them as light. That is not the referent of Isaiah chapter 60. So you'll note here that what he's done, he's taken a text that's a little bit difficult to understand. He's made it more difficult to understand by his so-called word study. And now he's reading into it this word that he claims that God gave him back in 2016, that, uh, that we're all going to be transfigured uh, before each other and we'll see each other as light. And he's just completely obliterated what this text is about. Now, granted, Isaiah 60 is not a super easy text to get. And even putting it in context takes a little bit of study. So you would need a good, you know, maybe a good study Bible or even a decent commentary. By the way, a good commentary that is for free is uh, uh, Dr. Paul Kretzmann's Commentary. You can find it at kretzmanproject.org if you're looking for a good lay level commentary. It, it, I literally you can't beat it. But uh, you, you'll find that Kretzmann when he talks about Isaiah 60 doesn't say anything about some end times army of who's been permanently transfigured um, and now shines with light. That's not what's going on here.
3: We're going to see it. Uh-huh. And that light cannot be separated from his love. And that light can't be separated from his life. And that light can't be separated from any of the characteristics that make up who he is. We're going to be a different species of believer.
0: Uh, okay, so apparently we're going to experience some kind of special um, light-based trans for Christians. N- no. And I can't believe the people sat there and said amen to this. I mean, this is just demonstrably absurd. Uh, talking about demonstrably absurd. Let's you know get to part two of our prophetic holy orders network information exchange syndicate twin spin. As we check in with Sean Bulls, brief video, but uh, you know well worth the listen. At least in this sense, uh, let's let's listen in as he twists the, the text of scripture to talk about downloads and impressions. Here we go.
4: The first way that I want to talk about, and this is the number one way that most people hear from God when we do our trainings, is impressions. An
0: impression is like it- so the the number one way people hear from God is is through impressions. <laughs> Isn't that how the Jedi operate? You know, I'm you know, you know always as emotion is the future. You know, I'm thinking of Yoda and things like that. So where in Scripture does it actually say? And I mean clearly. Clearly, that God is going to speak to us via impressions.
4: Download. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about the Holy Spirit searching the deepest parts of the
0: mind of God and relating to our mind and our heart as well. Uh huh. Now, notice he's referencing 1 Corinthians 2. Now, the question is. When we look at 1 Corinthians 2, will 1 Corinthians 2 say that God is going to speak to us in impressions? Let me back this up just a little bit so you can hear again his claim. And you can note the, the reference to downloads. Downloads, yeah. Um, which nobody understood until the era of modems. Yeah, you know, I remember the Earth before modems. Mm-hmm. Nobody talked about downloads, especially in the church. So, uh, you know, but since the modems and the internet and stuff like that, that that concept has been woven into into Christian doctrine. But it's not really Christian doctrine because it's not biblical doctrine. Listen again. Most
4: people hear from God when we do our trainings is impressions. An impression is like getting a download. First Corinthians two talks about the Holy Spirit searching the deepest parts of the mind of God and relating to our mind and our heart as well. Searching the deepest parts of us, making that connection. It's kind of like your computer device, your iPad, your your whatever it is that you use digitally. Somebody needs an update. When the update comes, it changes some of the processor, it changes some of the apps. We get downloads from heaven of God's thoughts because we share the same operating system or the same spiritual headspace as God.
0: (laughs) Have have you received your spiritual download uh, to upgrade your operating system so that you can hear from God via impressions? (laughs) You're thinking... Roseboro, what are you even talking about? I yeah, I know, I know. Now, so we're gonna apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis here to 1 Corinthians 2. And you're gonna kind of you're gonna get the context, but you're gonna note what he's doing is he's taking a difficult portion that is really kind of blurry when, on a first read, and he's importing into this text the idea that it somehow teaches that we can receive impressions, but that's not what the text is saying at all. All right. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 writes, I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaim uh, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm-hmm. And this flows beautifully from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he talks about you know really emphasizing the gospel and its centrality not only in his message, but in Christian doctrine. So he goes on and says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age uh or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So, he's making a distinction and which is a distinction that begins in chapter 1, the distinction between worldly wisdom, worldly concepts and the scandal of the cross itself, and then he goes on to explain that we do that he does talk about wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this age. This is a wisdom from God. So, We impart, he says, a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages and for our glory. This has to do with the wisdom of salvation by grace through faith through the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him." These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except for the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, which again is this contrast that begins in chapter 1, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In other words, you know, when we hear the gospel, the gospel is understood because the Spirit gives us that ability. Jesus says, no one can call me Lord, or no one calls me Lord except for by the Spirit. And, you know, when uh, Peter says to uh, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That's kind of the idea of what's going on. this That's the cross reference to this. So now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but himself is to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So you're going to note here, When you put it back in context, although this portion of 1 Corinthians 2 is a little bit more challenging to understand, it clearly is not teaching what Sean Bull said, that well, we receive downloads from God via impressions, and that's how we're to hear from God. That's not the referent in this uh, text at all, so... Yeah, I told you today's episode of Fighting for the Faith was going to be a little bit on the challenging side. Hopefully I'm making good on my promise or threat, whichever way you want to look at it. But I think you get the point. So uh, we are then up on our first break. If you would uh, like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Ken Copeland and see how his efforts went at uh, taking authority over Irma. Then we're going to hear from James Gall, another complicated segment. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
4: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the
1: Faith.
2: presents Church Day Select.
1: I'm
2: a heretic and I'm okay. I scheme Day. He's a heretic and he's okay. He skims all night and he lies all day. I twist God's word, I put on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen The Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. In Twist God's word, he puts on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen the Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. Here's the, the hair, is and he's okay. He schemes all night and lies all day. Twist God's word, I take your tithes and spend it on private jets. Have you seen my bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. If you twist God's, God's word, I you take your, your ties and spend it on private jets. Private jets. Have you seen his bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. And okay. don't care. i He's a person all night and he all God's word, I write bad books that will land you all in hell. I'll never say I'm sorry, cause I'll be there as well.
5: twists God's word, he writes bad
2: books that will land us all in hell. Ah! <laughs> he <his> <laughs>
0: Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith uh, could cause you to pay close attention to when people twist scripture using obscure texts to make them say things they don't. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you pick. That's right, you get to choose your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.90. Five cents a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From their Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, now that Irma has uh, done most of her work, I think she's still churning through the uh, south of the United States, uh, let's uh, do a money-grubbing televangelist update and uh, note the fact that, um, well, Ken Copeland seems to have failed miserably in in his attempts to take authority over Irma. But uh, let's do this.
2: I've got... 90,000 pounds in my pajamas I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge I've got lots of lovely lira Now the Deutschmarks getting dearer And my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge There is nothing quite as wonderful as money There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash Some people say it's folly But I'd rather have the lolly With money you can make the splash there is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. nothing like a newly
0: minted Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that waits the world around. Round, 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 round. it's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 All right. So, you Kenneth Copeland, as uh, Irma was uh, heading towards the uh, the coast of Florida, decided to step in and you know take authority. I mean, after all, I mean, you know, he teaches that your words can do stuff and stuff. And of course, his daughter failed miserably to take authority over Harvey. Yeah, that didn't work at all. Uh, let's see if uh, the the Grand Master Wizard Pooh Bah himself the uh, The Sith Lord of the uh, Word of Faith heresy, Kenneth Copeland. If uh, he can fare any better, let's listen in.
6: Before we do anything else, we're going to stick God's finger in the eye of that storm.
0: Talking about Irma.
6: And uh, which we have. uh, (laughs) That's the only Irma I ever hated in my life.
0: Now, he, he looks like he's serious. He's, he's getting ready to do business here. Now, a little bit of a note. He's going to go on a multi-minute long tangent not talking about Irma at all. So kind of be ready for that.
6: But I just got through with Harvey.
0: Harvey and Irma. Yeah, Harvey got the better of you, clearly. I mean... Uh... Says he just got through with Harvey. Yeah, well, yeah. Harvey came out the the uh, uncontested winner of that exchange, don't you think? Uh, uh, uh.
6: This unholy pair. <laughs> come on, get on your feet. Come on, come on, come on. All right,
0: they're gonna they're gonna get they're gonna get busy doing something. But like I said, here comes the weird bunny trail.
6: Now, let's settle some things because I want to settle it publicly. Most of you here already know this, but I want to settle it publicly. There were no storms. There was no death. No sickness. On what day did God create cancer?
0: Yeah, Um. these are all the consequences of our sin. Notice he's not actually exegeting a text.
6: No. All of that is born out of religious tradition and lack of knowledge.
0: Most... Yeah, which Christians say God created cancer? Uh-huh
6: especially of the New Testament. There's only one. We, words are the most important things on the planet.
0: Uh, apparently words are, yeah, that's right. Words are, not God, but words. Words.
6: The most important things there are. And God's word is the most precious thing on the planet. We live in a word created, word upheld,
0: word... I thought we lived in a God created, God upheld. Notice who apparently is in charge here. Words are. God created the world by speaking it into existence. Words did not create the world. Very first sentence of the Bible makes this explicitly clear: Genesis chapter one, verse one, Bereshit bara Elohim et ha shamayim ha eretz. In the beginning. God created. Yeah, God created. It doesn't say we're, we live in a word created universe. We live in a God created universe. What he just did there. Wow. It, blasphemous.
6: Dominated environment. You can't change that. The devil can't change that. God won't. Amen. But you can choose the words under which you live.
0: And we need to choose the words under which you live. Okay.
6: Go back over what we've learned in the past and narrow it down and get more picky about it. Because, hey, the more you know, the more you're responsible for. It.
0: And so, right. Yeah. So, I mean, now that you know this, you're responsible for Irma, you know,
6: God has never ever taken anybody. There's only one human being that he ever made sick. His name is Jesus.
0: Yeah, that's weird because I seem to recall um, many passages in the Old Testament where God has afflicted people. Hmm. Yeah, notice he's not exegeting. What do we call this? Uh, Prosperity. <laughs> he's he's but you know pontificating here, um, but he's not exegeting. That's for sure. One
6: man that he ever sent to hell. He's never sent anybody to hell ever.
0: I see. So God never sent anybody to hell. Yeah. So how'd they all end up there? You know. His
6: name is Jesus. I can prove it to you from. The- God is not the destroyer, and we know who is. God is not in control. What? Put your gun up.
0: So God isn't in control. I, yeah. <laughs> so he's not sovereign. Yeah, Okay.
6: That comes from religious brainwashing.
0: I see. So religious brainwashing teaches you that God is sovereign. Got it. He's not in control. He's
6: not the God of this world. Satan is the God of this world.
0: God is not the judge. Jesus is the judge. Um, Jesus is God, the son, second person of the Holy Trinity, the one true God. Uh Uh-huh. This is some weird theology here. Jesus is in control
6: of the church.
0: Um, that's weird. Because Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Romans chapter 13 says that there are no authorities on the earth except for those that have been established by God. So notice he's, this is some weird theology here. Here,
6: And there's a whole lot of that he doesn't have much to say about. It. The earth does not belong to God. It doesn't belong to Jesus. He gave it to men.
7: what
0: <laughs> So 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 the earth belongs to m- us okay we're not stewards we are owners oh wow that's bizarre and uh i can think of many passages that would <laughs> disprove this this is just a litany of blasphemy, wow,
6: what we do here if God, if you'll study the scripture closely, you'll begin to realize that God is pretty well bound up to whatever we ask him to do
0: oh so yeah god 's completely powerless he 's not sovereign we 're in charge he 's not he's he doesn't own the world, and so it 's up to us to yeah okay.
6: He can't just come button in here and stop that storm.
0: God can't come in here and <laughs> button up Irma. Wow. Wow. Which biblical texts say this? Somebody on
6: earth going to have to start speaking to this stuff.
0: Right, yeah. So, so, so it's one of us because I mean, it's a fault. God's sitting there going, "Will somebody please,
2: please do something about Irma? I'm totally powerless here. I I want to do something, but I can't because I don't own the place no more. I gave it to you
0: guys, and you guys got to do something." Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. <clears throat> the God, the, the Homer Simpson is God, right? Well, God sends judgment. No,
6: he doesn't send
0: judgment. I, I, wow. I I almost feel like this whole part, this middle part here, I mean, it just, just, you know, quote from Ken Copeland, five verses from the Bible that show that what he's saying is not true.
6: It's coming. But judgment that we know in the earth today is a... Process of seed and harvest.
0: Ah, yeah. So what have you been sowing?
6: Sowing and reaping.
0: Oh, I see. So so we sowed hurricane seeds.
6: Lots of folks need to be praying for a crop failure.
0: All right. Who sowed the Irma seeds? I'd like to find that fellow because you sow it. You're going to reap it. Uh This
6: nation has been on a serious, serious judgment.
0: (laughs) All right. From here, he's going to go on a wee bit of a tirade regarding Trump, which is not the point of this segment. So let's fast forward. He's laid out the theology. God can't do a thing. No, I mean, he's totally powerless. So it's up to us, we own the place, and somebody has been sowing hurricane seeds, and so we need a crop failure, and since words are the most important thing, because this is not a God-created world, no, 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 it's a word-created world, Uh, let's just jump to the chase, shall we, as as (laughs) Kenneth Copeland uses his authority and his words to get rid of Irma, because it worked so well with Harvey. didn't work well at all, but here we go. Father, in the name of Jesus, we
6: pray over all in the path of this storm. We curse this thing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We stand before you in faith. We stand before you in the name of Jesus. We stand before you... Hallelujah declaring before you praise God that Irma the hurricane
0: is dead yeah. <laughs> uh, keep in mind this was before Irma <laughs> barreled through the Bahamas and uh on into uh Florida so, just, he killed her. I mean, he saved the day, you know. Turn! Do dead hurricanes turn? I, yeah, I'm a little confused. Die! Turn and die. Yeah, so he's killing her. He's killing her, my man.
6: Sayeth the more.
0: <laughs> no. The Lord did not say it, die, Irma. She seemed to just be quite healthy all the way through Florida, you know. In the name of Jesus.
6: We pray for every person that's already been killed and hurt by this beast, this demonic, satanic thing. And we thank you for deliverance. We thank you for such great deliverance going on in the Texas Gulf Coast.
0: Yeah, and your, your daughter failed to take control of Harvey and pretty much decimated the Gulf Coast of Texas, yeah.
6: Oh, dear Jesus. Oh, dear Jesus. That devastating earthquake in Mexico.
1: Oh, God help us Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus.
0: We take
6: our authority, gather hands together.
0: we uh, They're taking their authority. They're grabbing hands on this authority thingy.
6: Gather hands together.
0: Yeah, okay, please. all right, yeah. We
6: take our authority.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, spoken as if he was channeling the devil himself.
6: Together as a solid front,
0: you... Yeah, these are first responders here. The weather warriors have been unleashed.
6: ...are here among us, and we set ourselves before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, O oh Father. We set ourselves before you... And we thank you. We thank you. We thank you.
0: What are we thanking him for?
6: In Jesus' name. In
0: Jesus' name. We what are we thanking him for again?
6: now pray for our partners
0: ah, the people who financially support. Ken Copeland, so um, I am so thankful. I mean, as we all know, you know, after, I mean, minutes after he took authority over Irma and killed Irma, yeah, she just dried up and went away. And everybody in the Caribbean and Florida, they didn't suffer any damage at all because of the great man himself. Ken Copeland, who took authority with his words over Irma and killed her. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't work at all that way, did it? No, not a bit. Moving along, let's do an NAR update.
2: Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight?
3: The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The, the, pinky, pinky, and the, the brain. Brain. pinky
2: and the Brain Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Their laboratory mice, their
0: genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the brain, 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 brain. Before
2: each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the brain, yes, Pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow
0: the earth. They're pinky, they're pinky, and the brain, 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 ah! All right, uh, so we're going to be listening to uh, James Gall, and James Gall is going to be telling us about, well, I think you could describe it as a a narrative, a miracle narrative. But is this the miracle narrative that we as Christians find ourselves in? Yes, well, the the miracle narrative that you find yourself in is actually quite important. But uh, let's uh, let James Gall do the explaining, and we'll see if we can do the cleaning up along the way. Here we go
5: on developing a picture frame for some who uh, aren't as familiar and a review for those who are We aren't living in a crossover period and season. I will do this introduction quickly. We're dealing in 50s. We're dealing in jubilee patterns right now. And so it is fifty we are years that last month, at the end of the results of the Six Day War in nineteen sixty seven, Jerusalem became a united city under Jewish rule. That is fulfillment of biblical prophecy.
0: All right. So anchor point number one in this miracle narrative is the restoring of Jerusalem.
5: Fifty years we're celebrating
1: that Jerusalem is no longer a divided city. Sectors, yes. With honor, yes. But it
5: is a united city. For 50 years. And the book of Joel gives a warning. It does not say he who divides Israel. What it prophesies and specifically says is that he who divides Jerusalem. And people actually. Now,
0: apparently, he's referencing Joel chapter 3. Yeah, I. Don't know what translation he's reading because when I read it, it doesn't say what he's saying.
5: Quote the verse wrong. But what it literally says, it gives a warning and a blessing. And there's a warning to not touch and not divide Jerusalem. So, how about covenantal understandings of like when a marriage is done, what God has brought together? Let no man bring asunder.
0: Uh, What on earth? The text in question, Uh, Joel chapter 3, starting verse 1, Behold in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. (laughs) What's the reference here? This is talking about the day of judgment. Um, yeah, that's what it says. Uh, yeah, because they have scattered them among the nations, have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. Um, yeah, so th- this text isn't saying what he's saying, but that's the one he's apparently referencing.
5: And so I, at a 50-year mark, and I have done this in Jerusalem, I've done it live over God TV, and around the world, and I do it tonight in the name of Jesus. And I say, what God has joined together, let no man or no political incorrect system bring asunder and bring division in Jesus' name.
0: Um, wow, I'm so glad he's decreeing and declaring. But you'll notice here that this is all about kind of anchoring ourselves in. In some kind of historical miracle narrative, and it begins with the restoration of Jerusalem being undivided and uh, now, you know, in Israel. Okay, and he's decreeing and declaring. Why, I don't know, but we'll keep listening, see if you can figure this one out. It's a wee bit abstract.
5: Because we're in a turnaround season. And this new ambassador of the United States that has been appointed by President Trump is an Esther for such a time as this.
0: All right. He's decreed it and declared it, man. Okay.
5: okay no. What's her name? Haley. What? No, the lady. The lady. The US, Haley. Haley. That was the governor from South Carolina. That's what I said, you and a master. That's what I said. She is anointed. She is an Esther. She has governmental authority. And that lady is shaking the rafters. Come on, it's awesome. So we don't only have,
1: okay. So 50 years.
5: We are celebrating a jubilee of 50 years. That Jerusalem is a united city under Jewish rule. We're celebrating a 50-year mark. That 50 years ago, and I know that there's give and take on what began when and where and all. I understand those issues. But it is very appropriate and accurate to say that we are also in right now, in this year, we are celebrating three streams Of the Holy Spirit that got released 50 years ago. Uh,
0: Quick question for you. According to Scripture, when did God send the Holy Spirit? 50 years ago or nearly 2,000 years ago? Mm -hmm. Go with the 2,000. So this is weird because now we're into an alternative miracle narrative and miracle narratives will anchor you in either good theology or bad theology. Now, real quick here, uh, if you think back to the time of the Reformation, we are literally coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation next month, uh, actually the end of next month, and the you know, the question comes up is that uh you know, when the reformers were challenged to provide a miraculous verification for the gospel they were preaching. Mm-hmm. Which miracles did they point to? Did they point to miracles that were, well, um, current to the time five hundred years ago? No. Yeah, when confronted with this concept, uh, Luther, Martin Luther said, yeah, um, the miracles that confirmed the gospel we're preaching were performed by the apostles, chiefly the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Uh-huh, the miracle narrative he pointed to was the miracle narrative in Scripture. Now, if you've ever read the biblical text, you're going to note that over and again in the Old Testament, there are these punctuated times when the summary of the history of Israel up to that point is restated succinctly. Mm-hmm. And uh, when this happens, you sit there and go, why are they doing this? And if the reason why is because they believed that they were part of of that narrative that miracle narrative so if you were to go into the book of acts and read the story of stephen in acts chapter 6 and acts chapter 7 there you have an example of the recounting of the miracle narrative Uh uh-huh you know from creation to abraham to isaac to jacob to moses to king david and up to christ and on through right And you'll note when the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, we have an example of the sermons that he preached, and he would do the same thing. He would recount this miracle narrative. And brothers and sisters, this is our miracle narrative. This is the one you want to be anchored in, not this other one. Let me explain. Um, Here's what it says in Acts chapter 13. I'll start at verse 13. Uh, Now, when Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, uh the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, now watch what happens. Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them a king, Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, uh, who will do all my will of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, as he promised. So you'll note here, this is a succinct version of it, and uh, the longer version of it is in Acts chapter 7, worth the read, but this is our narrative. You sit there and go, well, how can that be? It's so old. Yeah, because... We are in Christ. How many times have you read in the New Testament, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, we are in Christ. This is our miracle narrative. These are the miracles that we are to point to. And this miracle narrative, which is found in the written biblical text, also accompanying it is sound Christian biblical doctrine as we listen to James Gall spewing this alternative miracle narrative based on 50s and jubilee seasons and cycles and stuff, it's going to become clearer and clearer that the theology that goes along with this miracle narrative is a false doctrine. Let's keep going.
5: The charismatic movement 50 years ago in 1967, some would say it started in 1963, but let's say there's the tipping point, 1967. The Jesus People Movement on the West Coast in 1967. Lonnie Frisbee, Chuck Smith, and thousands of young people getting baptized in the ocean. And it spread across the United States. And it spread to many nations and cities. And Nashville was actually, at one point, in that period of time, was called the Third Coast. East Coast, West Coast. And at times, Nashville was called the Third
0: Coast. Now, a little bit of a note here. Lonnie Frisbee, mm-hmm. homosexual.
5: Because why?
1: There was a man who I look a lot like today. Huh who welcomed the
5: Holy Spirit in a Church of Christ. And the Holy Spirit started getting poured out, not only there, not only there, folks, all over. I was in Kansas City.
0: So the Holy Spirit got poured out 50 years ago. Well, according to the miracle narrative that I'm a part of, yeah, it's because it's my miracle narrative too. It's yours as well. The Holy Spirit got poured out, two thousand years ago uh-huh
5: it was amazing Todd. i wore my i dry I, I had hair back then remember you know i i i mean i i, I grew my hair out i bought bell bottom jeans i i i bought braid and i i even learned how to sew braid on the bottom of my jeans i even bought a flannel shirt okay but you only had to have one because you never changed your clothes Okay. I like changing my clothes today, but anyway. <laughs> fifty years ago, there was a charismatic movement that got birthed in the earth
0: at the. All right, a movement that got birthed in the earth fifty years ago. Listen to the theology of this thing.
5: Same time, blood was shed
1: in the Middle East in Israel.
0: Yeah, so invoking Israel in the Six Days War and apparently congeals all of this together in light, you know.
1: And 50 years ago, it was as though
5: bowls were filled and got tipped. And they got poured out on Catholics. Jesus.
0: Uh, now listen to this. So the Holy Spirit 50 years ago got poured out not 2,000 years ago, but 50 years ago, got poured out on Catholics. So the theology that goes along with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit doesn't matter if people actually deny the biblical gospel, you know, rebelliously pray to saints and the Virgin Mary and things like that. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit doesn't care about any of that stuff. Uh-huh. Which means this isn't the biblical Holy Spirit. You see, this is an alternative miracle narrative And with this alternative miracle narrative comes an alternative theology, one that isn't biblical or Christian.
5: And they were poured out on Lutherans, and they were poured out on Methodists. Do you realize that in this region right here, it is one of the only centers that still exists from the charismatic movement that is a national center to a denomination, Aldersgate the United Methodist Charismatic Renewal Center, right up here in like Hendersonville, Goodlettsville area. It's one of the only, there's really only about two. There's a Lutheran Renewal Center in St. Paul and and Aldersgate, just up the road here. How do I know that? Because I've held meetings there. 50 years ago, there was the birthing of Methodocostals and Baptocostals and Catholicostals and, and everybody kind of laid the labels and they just all got together and sing in the spirit and learned to pray for one another and, and we would like started to shake and we didn't know what shaking was and, and like and, and and we started like prophesying and we didn't know what prophesying was either and and it sure was good because we laid our labels aside and we met in Jesus.
0: Uh-huh. So you laid your labels aside and you met in Jesus. by rebelling against what God the Holy Spirit has revealed regarding the importance of sound doctrine in the Scriptures, which were actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-huh. So there you go. Again, a little bit of an esoteric lesson here, but this is a lesson about miracle narratives. The one that you believe you're a part of is going to convey theology. Now, the Holy Spirit that... True Christians have wasn't poured out 50 years ago. The true, the, the Holy Spirit that true Christians have was poured out 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. The miracles we point to are the miracles in Scripture that affirm the message and the gospel that the apostles taught and their theology. The theology that James Gall is giving is. It contradicts that theology, the apostolic doctrine, and uh, the importance of sound doctrine. And this is all wrapped up in claims regarding, you know, this, this so-called outpouring of the Spirit 50 years ago. So you see, which whichever um, miracle narrative you are pointing to and think that you're a part of,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Is going to dictate your theology, either true or false, sound or heretical. And the theology he's giving, James Gall, well, it's heretical. It doesn't matter regarding the claims of the miraculous that he's pointing to. Those are all dubious, kind of sketchy, you know what I'm saying? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Empire Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to Louis Giglio botch the story of David and Goliath. He's got a new book that does it in spades, apparently. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
4: We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it.
0: For additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time.
6: That's right. Hey, ho!
0: The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Fresh Life Church. That's where Levi Lesko holds court. Uh, but we will not be hearing Levi today. We're going to be hearing Louis Giglio as he preaches on his new book, Goliath Must Fall. And i got to admit, this is one of the more unique twistings of this text that I've heard. Normally, the way the text gets twisted is, you are Goliath and you've got to slay your giants. Yeah, that's a complete botching of the text. You're not David. Now, here's the funny part. Louis Giglio rightly identifies that you're not David. He will do it partway through the sermon, but the problem is is that he's still not going to rightly tell the story because he allegorizes the giants and the valleys and, and makes it all about, well, you experiencing your purpose and stuff. Yeah, I wish I was making that up. So, uh, without any further ado, here's Louis Giglio and one of the more unique twistings of the story of David and Goliath. Here we go.
7: hope that you're leaning in with us today. You know, the greatest underdog story of all time is the story of David and Goliath. Everybody knows it. You don't have to be in church to know this story. People in business know it, people in sports know it. It's a metaphor that's used for the underdogs of life wherever we find them. And I don't think anybody probably needs the background on the story today. What we need is the foreground reality that it's not just a shepherd boy and a nine-foot-tall Goliath somewhere back in history that we're talking about today. We're talking about giants that are still standing in our valleys today.
0: Uh, (laughs) Giants in my valleys. Is that like termites in my rafters? What are you talking? See, this is this is why he's not going to land on his feet. It's because of this. And
7: they're taking the wind out of our sails and taunting us and keeping
0: us from everything God has dreamed for
7: for our lives. That's
0: why. I see. the The giants in your valleys are keeping you from God's dream for your life. Excuse me while I go put my forehead through a brick wall
7: we say goliath must fall it's for our freedom's sake and for god's glory's sake whatever's got its foot on our neck today has got to come down in the power of jesus name could be the giant of comfort which
0: is a little <laughs> the giant of comfort i've never seen that one is that the big comfy couch Giant one uh,
7: that's in the book. We won't talk about that today because that step on everybody's toes in the house today. But it could be the giant of addiction or anger.
0: Rejection is a big giant. The giant of rejection. Yeah. Oh, man, is he is the giant of rejection in one of your valleys? You see, this is the problem here. It is true. That, and he's going to correctly identify Jesus as the uh, center of the story. Um <laughs> the story of David and Goliath is not about Jesus helping it, it, Jesus defeating the giant of rejection for you. <sighs>
7: our lives or the giant that we're going to focus on today the giant of fear the story is found in first samuel 17 if you have access to a bible or scripture i hope that you'll turn there with me i want to read just a couple of verses in the story so that you'll know today that we're not just like pulling giants out of a hat this isn't
0: like a yeah you are you are pulling giants out of a hat like it is like a magic trick in this presentation where we're like, oh, let's get a giant out of the story of
7: David and Goliath. We're letting the giants emerge out of the text. And
0: then- <laughs> No, you're not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you're not. You're, you're actually making it up because the story of David and Goliath has a giant. It does not have giants, plural.
7: Discovering these same giants are around in our lives right now. And we see right in the opening of this, if you'll just read down to verse eight and following, it says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? In other words, he's perplexed because nobody's fighting and he wants to know why they keep coming out. Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Then choose a man, having come down to me, if he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. So the stakes are high. And then the Philistine said, this day, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And then look at verse 11 on Hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, the king of this army of Israel, and all, can we all say that? Saul and all. Can you say that with me? Saul and all. Everybody is in the same boat after hearing the Philistines' taunts. Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Fast forward over to verse 24. David has now arrived into the story.
0: You, you just skipped verses 12 through 23. You're not really exegeting here, dude.
7: He steps up to the battle line to bring supplies to his brothers. He now hears Goliath, and he says at the end of verse 24, it's recorded, and when the Israelites saw the man, when they saw Goliath, what had they seen? They'd seen this nine-and-a-half-foot giant covered in armor from head to toe. They knew he was undefeated. They knew he was really unassailable. He had a track record from his youth. And it says, and when they saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. That's why we're saying today that fear
0: must fall. No 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 that is not how you do sound exegesis this wasn't about fear falling goliath is a stand-in for the devil Uh uh-huh david is a stand-in for christ remember back in the garden of eden it talked about you know how the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent Yeah, there's this, that kind of thing going on here, you know, by allegorizing this and talking about the giant of fear, you're not really letting the text speak and you're not really pointing us to Christ. Although in a very few short minutes, you're going to say that David is a stand in for Jesus. The point is you've botched this already because you're not letting the text speak You're forcing the text to say these things, and it doesn't. Fear is a huge
7: giant, not only in this story, not only in their lives, but in the lives of so many people today. I would imagine somebody in every gathering... In every city today is saying, that's exactly where I am. And if it's not fear, it's one of fear's cousins. You know, Goliath had brothers. He came from a messed up gene pool. He wasn't only nine foot tall and, you know, a little bit out of the bounds of the percentile ranges for what normal human growth looked like. He had brothers who were giants. He had a brother with ten fingers and ten toes on each hand and on each foot. So whatever family they came from was a little wacky. but. At the same time, we see that we've still got these kind of giants in our story today. And fear is a big one. And its cousins, like Goliath's brothers, are worry. That's just a nicer way of saying fear sometimes. Panic, stress, depression, dread, doom, darkness, and then anxiety.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, but those are not the, quote, giants of this text. Ugh. Man, <laughs> this is just so miserable.
7: ...which, of course, is a giant that has its hand on the throat of America.
0: Anxiety is everywhere. So the anxiety giant is... We, we better slay it, man. Oh, wait, we better figure out how Jesus slayed the anxiety giant. I, this doesn't make any sense. It's a
7: cousin of fear. They're not exactly the same thing, but the giant is standing in this story and the giant standing in our story. I heard a great pastor say that fear is faith in the enemy. His name was Levi Lesko, and I stole that from him, and the first two or three times I gave him credit for it, and then after that I just said, a friend of mine, and then after that I just said, fear is faith in the enemy. So I'm here to correct and repair that, and if Levi stole it from someone, then I offer higher credit to those people that he stole it from before he forgot where he got it. But fear is faith that everything the enemy plans is going to happen. Fear is basically Murphy's Law on steroids. Everything that can go wrong is going to go wrong. And fear is forgetting that God is great and has a plan for our life that can't be thwarted.
0: Uh, so, so the plan for our life can't be thwarted. Okay. So this is all about learning how to do the unthwartable plan thingy. Got it.
7: And so if fear is in the story, if the fear is in your story or one of fear's cousins, and you've heard something like this. Now, this is old school cassette tape player. Google it later. pretty amazing. You can probably still find one on eBay. But when fear is in your story, you hear something like this playing in the background. The soundtrack of your story is something like this.
2: You are not going to make it. This is too big to overcome. You might as well give up. This is where it all falls apart. You are never going to recover from this. Something bad is going to happen to you. This is never going to work out. God has completely forgotten about you. Don't even think that there is a way through this. I wonder what other terrible things might happen. No one cares about you. No one is pulling for you.
7: The worst thing that could happen will happen. It's amazing how many people live with that script as the soundtrack for their life.
0: Now, granted, that's, that's absolutely true. There are a lot of people who suffer from those types of anxiety-ridden thoughts. They just keep replaying in their head. However, David in the Psalms is the one who addresses those types of anxieties and fears. And those aren't the the fears that are addressed or the things that are addressed in the story of David and Goliath. So he's looking at the wrong place and he's making the text do something there that it shouldn't do. I'll give you an example. David wrote this Psalm. It's Psalm 13, where he says, How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This is Psalm 13. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The themes, the anxieties, the fears, the self talk that Louis Giglio is trying to take on are, are actually taken on straight away in the Psalms not in the story of David and Goliath. So we got a problem here. The solution, by the way, to this is trusting in the Lord, trusting in his steadfast love and his mercy and his grace and his promise for the forgiveness of your sins and that you will see him face to face, that he will ultimately vindicate you and cause your enemies to, well, perish, things of that nature. Read the Psalms. That'll help you. So, I mean... This the sermon is messed up. He's addressing a real problem, but he's prescribed the wrong text for it. And in order to make this text do what he's trying to make it to do, he's got to twist it. And he's already, well, doing that quite well.
7: The enemy has gotten into the story. He's planted a seed of fear in their life. It's grown to become a giant dominating their thinking, dominating The landscape of what they think can happen and what is possible for their life. And that's why we're saying today at Fresh Life that fear must fall. Why? Because it's... It's taking the life out of us and it's stealing the glory away from a great God who has a perfect plan for our lives and the power
0: who has a perfect plan for our lives. Notice the purpose-driven doctrine is at the center of this. And the capacity to
7: pull off the promises and the plans that he's made for our lives. We're reading in the headlines too often these days stories where the darkness closes in and absolutely suffocates the hope and the possibility that even and any form of life for us is possible. And so people bail out. Because fear is real and it's in our story. But as we're looking today at this text and looking back at the story of David and Goliath, there are a few big ideas that I want to put forward today that really revolutionized the story for us. And if fear is going to fall, if anger is going to fall, rejection is going to fall, if any giant in our lives is going to fall, we've got to get the story right before we can experience the power.
0: Yeah, you've already botched the story badly. Terribly, like irreparably.
7: ...of God in our present moment. And here's the first big idea. Are you ready for this? This is the big idea coming out of Goliath Must Fall. That in this story, you are not David in the story of David and
0: Goliath. Now, that's true. I told you this was coming. But <laughs> Goliath is not anxiety. Goliath is not fear. It's important that if you're going to get David right... You better get the whole typology worked out properly. He's biffed it on the other end.
7: I know I'll let that set for a minute because like, who is this guy and where did he come from? He, he's like rolling in here with some heresy in Fresh Life Church today. But just bear with me for a minute. All of us have heard somewhere, any church people here. I'm a church kid. If you're not a church kid and you're new to this story, let me tell you how it was preached to church kids. Vacation Bible School, Backyard Bible Club, Summer Camp, Youth Retreat. Some speaker came in. They always pulled out David and Goliath about halfway through the deal. They preached an amazing sermon. They looked down at me because I was the littlest middle school kid in the gathering, pointed at the little scrawny kid back here because David in the story was about 14, 15 years old. We think he was a little shepherd boy. We're not sure. He could have been a little bit taller, but let's just say he was medium sized, little 14 year old. And they look over at the middle schoolers and they go, and if this little shepherd boy could take down a nine and a half foot giant, then you can take down whatever's facing you in your life. And I mean, our hair was would instantly light on fire. We would be filled with more zeal than we could contain. We would scour the campsite for five smooth stones. We would find them. We would come back the next night. We would consecrate them at the altar. The pastor of the camp would lay hands on our rocks and pray for them. And we would go out of that camp thinking, I'm going to take down every giant in my story. And we were convinced it was going to be that way. But here's the reality for the church kids here today. Some of the same giants that were in our story at 15 and 16 and 17 at those summer camps are still standing in our valley today at 26 and 36 and 46 years old. Because in our own strengths, we're not able to take down giants and hello, God never asked us to. We just assumed that we were going to be the hero of the story. The reason is, for another day, that we assume that the Bible was all about us. And so we look for all the hero roles, and then we try to get in the hero roles. I'll walk on water. I'll bring down walls seven stories tall at Jericho. I'll get a slingshot and take down the giant of rejection or take down the giant of addiction. But here's the thing. We're not the hero in God's story called the Bible.
0: Yeah, that's right. We're not the hero, and fear and anxiety and rejection are not the villain. So you got to get both sides of this equation right, or you're going to botch the story and you're not going to really do it justice, which is exactly what Louis Giglio is doing. We continue.
7: Jesus is the hero in God's story called the Bible. And I love that we worked for the last few years on a project called the Jesus Bible, helping us see Jesus from beginning to end. And so if you fast forward to 1 Samuel 17, you say, well, where's Jesus in this text? We know he's not uh, the Philistine army. We know he's not Goliath. We know he's not Saul. We know he's not Israel. So it must be that Jesus is David in the story of David and Goliath. And here's what's pretty amazing about that. Do you know where David was from? A little town called Bethlehem. A little shepherd boy from Bethlehem came to deliver God's people.
0: Do they pay these people to sit on the front row and go, oh,
2: (gasps) wow.
7: (sighs) (laughs) And then you just fast forward through history. Another shepherd came from Bethlehem. Or through Bethlehem, better said, to you Salt Lake City guys. He had to come from heaven through Bethlehem to get in the story of God on earth. And Jesus came to take down every giant in our story. He,
0: he did? <laughs> I thought he came to crush the head of the serpent. That's the devil. Um. Okay. So this is the first idea that
7: sort of changes things, that you're not David. So God isn't looking at you today going, you got
0: to bulk up, armor up, hulk up. I wonder if Stephen Furtick will allow him to say that at his church, because it didn't go well for Matt Chandler when Chandler said that you're not David at the Code Orange revival. The very first one, yeah, he was unceremonially booted from the event figure
7: out a way to get get your rocks and your sling together and go do some damage no he's saying i came from heaven to earth to take the head off to decapitate every giant to defang the power of the darkness if you will and to give you a pathway of truth that you can walk on to say it a different way jesus is your giant slayer and he's taken all the giants down it's taking them all down. The second big idea is this, and maybe coming into your campus today, uh, you noticed that there was a little crime scene outside. It was just kind of a rough take on a cool idea, and it is this, that your giant, whatever your giant is today, is already dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, dead
0: so Jesus came. They s- set up a crime scene? <laughs> Do they have the tape set up? You know, big old giant, you know, dead on the Oh, man, seriously? To kill your giant. And he
7: did a great job in his death, burial, and resurrection to destroy the power of darkness. And so if fear is your giant today, I'd like you to know that fear is a crime scene.
0: Fear is my giant, and he's the crime scene. But don't worry, Jesus has already killed fear. <sighs>
7: So, you, when you come to fear, when you, when you hear the message, when, when the, when the soundtrack starts playing, abandon you. You, are never going to survive. you,
0: you need to immediately think. Is that Kylo Ren from the, uh, Star Wars movies? Who was saying that? Fear
7: is dead. There's, there's a, there's a beautiful song, Zach Williams, Fear is a Liar. And it is a liar. But fear in and of itself and its power is dead. Jesus has taken the sting out of fear.
0: And he's taken... What? (laughs) What text says he's taken the sting out of fear? (laughs) It sounds almost biblical, but that is not what it says.
7: All the power out of the lies, he's replaced that with his truth. And he's given us a new glimpse into who he is and what he can do. In our lives, and if the first thing you think when you walk to your giant is, "My giant is a crime scene, rejection 's dead, anger's dead, addiction is dead, and and you realize Jesus
0: actually has come to do- yeah you 're going to note something here, and I want to show you this from a biblical text. he has this backwards. and yeah you got to understand biblical theology and what i'm about to say some of you may have never heard and that is it's not about fear being dead nope it's about you being dead in christ yeah he's put the emphasis on the completely wrong syllable here So uh, we're going to be taking a look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I think this will be quite helpful uh, in also explaining what's wrong with this. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Here the Apostle Paul is taking up the words of his critics, who basically are saying, So you're saying, do we should just go on sinning so that grace may abound? No, 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 of course not, all right? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Yeah, you see, Jesus didn't kill your giants. When you have been united to Christ, you're already dead. The reason why we can say no to sin is because we're already dead. This is what the text says. So we continue. Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death? Notice it doesn't say symbols here. No, in fact, this actually presupposes something really happened to you in your baptism. We were buried, therefore, with has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, and we have, we believe that we will also live with him, and we will. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh huh. Yeah, Louis Giglio has this way, way, way backwards.
7: Do the work and has finished the work. But here's the second part of that big idea Your giant is dead, but your giant is still deadly. Your giant's dead, but it's still deadly. I know. Yeah, which text are you exegeting again? (laughs) Sounds a little bit crazy, right? But think about it like this when David killed Goliath. Yeah. He killed him by hitting him right in the head with this stone. Yeah. Goliath, you know, stutters, shudders, falls over and is dead. David runs toward the dead giant. He, he pulls his, the giant sword out of his sheath, chops his head off, which I don't know if a, a middle school kid can whack a head off in one stroke or if it took three or four, if he had to hack it off like a machete. I don't know. It's gory and gross. I know, but he had to cut the guy's head off. He's a large man. He pulls the head up. On display for all the Philistines to see, can you imagine the, the spotter on that side of the, the valley? They're like, well, what is happening? I don't know. It looks like the Goliath fell over. We're not sure why. The little kid's running up there. Is Goliath moving? No, he's not moving at all. He. I don't think he's going to. Oh, no, the kid's got his sword. Uh, Maybe it was a ploy. Maybe, you know, I wouldn't have run up there. Maybe Goliath faked falling over. And then when the kid got close, he grabbed him by the neck, squeezed his eyes out. I I don't, I don't, I would have gotten that close, but no, he's dead. Pulls the thing out, cuts his head off, holds it up. So the spotter can, oh, this is not good. No, this is terrible. What's happening? He's holding his head up, chopped his head off. And then do you know what he did with the head? Anybody know? He carried the head to Jerusalem. 20 miles. That's a long way. That's not the HOV lane. That's not fast tracking it. That's like I got a head and I'm, I'm walking basically 20 miles with a guy's head. Village by village. What is that? That's Goliath. Have, oh, we've heard of Goliath. Well, there he is. Hello, Goliath. Everyone, everyone, Goliath. Then when he gets to Jerusalem, the, the significance is that this is the centerpiece in God's plan and story of redemption and glory. And that giant's head makes it all the way to the temple in Jerusalem, dead. But yet, our giants, dead, are still talking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, see, Romans 6 says, the reason why we do not continue in sin is because we are dead. The one who has died is free from sin, Scripture says.
7: When we were college kids, older high school kids, my friend Andy Stanley and I would go to the summer camp every year. They had a week for seventh and eighth grade, a week for ninth and 10th, a week for 11th and 12th. And if you got old enough to be a counselor, you could stay the whole, you could stay a month basically on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, which sounds cool now, but it was kind of jungle less back then in the seventies at the little Presbyterian camp we stayed at, which was in the woods, I'm telling you. And the girls' cabins were down that way, the guys down down this way. And I mean, there's snakes everywhere. And so on the Weekends, we would go out and put lime all around the girls' cabins and bathhouses because you had to walk outside at night in the dark to the bathhouse, so you probably didn't do that. You're like, I'll just wait. Thank you very much. Um, But then we would go out and just on these extermination outings, and we really were just looking for an opportunity to kill snakes because we were petrified of snakes. So in the the afternoon, late evening, uh, twilight hours on that Saturday and Sunday before the next group of campers came, we would walk through these fields behind the girls' cabins and grass about this deep probably had tennis shoes on with the baseball bats, and we would see the copperheads in the sandy soil through the grass. And then once it got a little bit dusty...
0: Is this going to help me understand First Samuel 17? I, I not, I'm not seeing the connection here.
7: We would spot them with our flashlights. We would pound them on the head. We would kill them like with a 100 blows to the head. <laughs> And then we knew the one thing you have to do when you kill a snake, you've got to bury that head. And so we would grind the head down into the sand with the baseball bat and hold it really tight, grab the body, snatch it hard, and snatch the head off from the end of the snake. You're like, why are you telling us this? You were interrupting a perfectly good summer. <laughs> because we would then want to carry the snakes with us. Because you don't want to leave a a mostly, you know, attached snake... Laying in the grass for the next guy coming behind you or when we're circling back, somebody's going to think that's a live snake. So we just carried all the snakes we killed, which could be up to 10 or 12 in our hand. So we got 10 snakes by the tail in our hand, which heads have been buried along the way for the last while. But as you're walking, all 10 of the snakes are just wrapping themselves all the way around your arm and wiggling and squirrels. You're just like, I know they're dead. I killed them, I pounded their heads into oblivion, squashed them down to the sand, snatched their bodies, separated them from their heads, and then put sand on top of their heads, and then walked away. I know they're dead, but oh my goodness, this is killing me right now. Do you know that if a snake dies of natural causes, I don't know why I say natural causes, of any causes, (laughs) on a trail... Let's just say it died of natural causes. On the trail, you came along a month later, it had decomposed down to its skeleton, and you somehow decided that you wanted to test it out, and you put your foot towards its fang and stepped on and punctured your foot with its fang. Do you know that even a month later, a rattlesnake would automatically inject spring-loaded venom from a month ago? from its fang into your foot and you would immediately need to seek medical help. Your giant is dead, but it's still deadly. In other words, what I'm saying is your giant is dead, but your giant... Yeah, what's weird
0: is that's not part of the story of David and Goliath at all. And uh, as interesting as that snake story is, the problem is it's a story that's not even related to the biblical text. <sighs> Wow, this is bad. We continue. It's still talking.
7: That's how the giant is still moving. He's not squiggling and wiggling and trying to wrap itself up your arm. It's mostly talking to you as if it's not dead, even though it is dead, because you're like, look, I know Jesus already carried your head to a cross in Jerusalem. I already know he already took out your power in his death, burial, and resurrection, but somehow there's a little overlap period here on planet Earth, and you're still talking like you're living, but I know you're talking, but you're already dead.
0: And this... No, the biblical text, Romans 6, 6 says we're dead. We are already dead. Dead, dead, dead in Christ.
7: It's a reality. So we come into our story and and Jesus has finished the work. that The giants are already dead. The head's already been severed. The power has already been disconnected, but the mouth is still moving. The
0: awful that yeah, I, I think that's Kylo Ren.
7: Of you are, they are going to hate you. Your chances don't look good. This is the end of the road. Just face it. You're not mountain. And it's staggering, isn't it? How many people live bound by the voice of a giant that is dead? So how do we walk free?
0: Yeah, will we hear about repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Uh, somehow, I'm just not thinking that's where he's going. So, um, you know, what are we going to do here? What do we do with this? Hmm. I just want to get practical, just for a few minutes. How? How okay. then
7: do we walk free if we if we're living with anxiety wrapped around our neck,
0: suffocating? Which is about not trusting God, having f- true faith in Him for what He has promised.
7: Us every day. Panic is a part of our story. Medication is the only way we're coping with life right now. We dread everything. We worry about everything. Doom, darkness is just closing in in our world. How do we break free from fear and all of fear's cousins? Well, it's basically wrapped up in two things. It has to do with what you see with your eyes, the eyes of your heart, and what you say with your mouth. It has to do with what you see with your eyes and what you say. With your mouth, what you see with your eyes. Can you say that with me? It has to do with what you see with your eyes and what you say with your mouth. It has to do with what you see with your eyes and what you say with your mouth. You say, no, it's all about a slingshot and five stones. So preach a great message about what my five rocks are and how I can get a good slingshot and how I can take good aim. It's really not about what's in your hand. Think about this. When David came into the valley against the giant. And by the way, David, so when it says in verse uh, 24 that all the Israelites ran from Goliath in great fear, the very next verse in verse 25 says, um, now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? Drop down to verse 26. David then asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? That's a lone voice right there. Then you look down a few verses later, and I love it. It
0: says, well, here... that's the voice of faith, the one who trusts Yahweh.
7: What's going to be done, but nobody's willing to do that. And then David says in verse 32, to the king, to King Saul, let no one lose hope or lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out. And fight him. Why? Because he wasn't shut down by what he saw in a nine and a half foot tall Goliath. Because he saw something else that was driving his ability to think differently about the circumstances. And then he spoke differently to the circumstances than anybody else. And at the end of the day, yeah.
0: He spoke differently to the circumstances. What? Are you like blending NAR doctrine here? Are we supposed to decree and declare now? What is that?
7: Came out with five smooth stones, only needed one, but maybe some of those other giant brothers are around and we got a few extra for them. He came out with a slingshot, which he knew how to use well, but his weapon was neither of those. His weapon what was what was in his mouth when he came out to Goliath and said,
0: no. His weapon was God. The text explicitly says so.
7: You're coming at me with what? A spear and a javelin? That's impressive. But here's what I'm coming at you with. I'm coming at you with the name of the
0: Lord of the armies of... Yeah, it wasn't his words. It was his God. The Lord is the one who won that battle for David.
7: Israel, which you have defied. So I see something different and I'm saying something different. And what I'm seeing and what I-
0: So are you seeing and saying the right things in order to have God d- defeat your Goliaths? Man, this is bad. Saying are going to be
7: the difference makers in this moment. What I'm seeing and what I'm saying are showing you that I'm going to be a difference maker in this moment. So it wasn't like, you know.
0: Yeah, I- I'm going to be a difference maker. So are you going to be a difference maker? You got to be a difference. You
7: got to make a difference. I'm coming at you with uh, this or with this technique or this or that. No, I see something and I'm going to say something. And I think that's the principle for my life and the principle for your life. There's a text. I want.
0: You think that's the principle is see and say things. Yeah, this is just
7: bleh. ...lead you to today, which is a practical roadmap for how to take down your giant.
0: All right, so this is some practical stuff. Take notes. He's going to teach you how to practically do this, to take down your giant. But don't don't think that just because your giant is dead, although he said Jesus is the one who takes down our giants. This is really confusing. Who's supposed to take down my giant again? Is it me or Jesus? The power of the finished work of Jesus. It's not going to be a challenge for us today to say,
7: okay, let's get our courage up and go out and do this thing. Because, you know, the antidote to fear isn't courage. The antidote to fear isn't, I got to be more brave. I got to be more courageous. I got to dig down deep and somehow not be afraid of this thing or not be anxious about this situation anymore or not worry about this outcome. That The antidote to fear isn't courage. The antidote to fear is faith.
0: Now, that's true. What he just said is absolutely true. The problem is, again, is is that this is in the midst. There's some truth in the midst of a whole lot of bad, false goulash. Yes, the antidote to fear is faith. The antidote to worry is faith. Mm -hmm. This is true. Faith and trust that God will meet your needs. Get on your knees, pray to him. He wants to hear from you in the midst of your trials and your troubles, in the midst of your struggles against your own sinful flesh, against the temptations of the devil and the world. He wants to hear from you. Trust that he wants to hear from you, and he will see you through these things. Believe what Scripture says regarding the fact that you are dead in Christ Mm -hmm. and alive in him as well. You've been buried and raised with him, and that you can say no to sin.
7: And the soundtrack of faith is worship. That's what I see. The
0: soundtrack of faith is worship. (sighs) Worship is important. I just don't know if it's the soundtrack, but okay. And what I say coming together
7: to change my viewpoint of what is about to happen in my story. Giants are real. I'm not trying to belittle them today. I shared when I was here two summers ago about my own struggle with anxiety.
0: How do you belittle fear? I don't mean to belittle fear. How do you belittle regret? You talked about fear and regret as being giants. (sighs) Led me into a pit
7: of depression. Knocked me out of life for several months of life. Shelly can tell you how dark it was, how broken it was, how frustrating it was. I didn't leave the house to go to dinner with friends or to go to meetings at the church. I I couldn't cope with normal everyday circumstances and situations. I'm not here today to put a band-aid on your giant. I'm not here to give a one-size-fits-all simple little formula that if everybody presses the right buttons, anger and rejection and addiction and all these major strongholds that have got their foot on top of us today will all just vanish and go away. But I am saying today that I'm standing here by the grace of God to say to anybody with a giant here that the giants are real and the giants are deadly, dead but deadly, and they can take us out. But here's the thing, our giants are not bigger than Jesus. There's not a giant in any story in this house today that's bigger than Jesus. And so what we want to do today is figure out how to get our view back on him. How to get the attention back on him because what we have a tendency to do is to worship the giant. You're like, I don't worship my giant. Oh, yes, we do. For years, probably after that, I talked to people about my anxiety. My anxiety this, my anxiety that. Oh, I'm not going to be able to go, babe. I think my anxiety's acting up. And I talked about anxiety so much that anxiety became the object of my conversation, of my focus. It was what I saw and it was what I said. All I saw was anxiety and all I said was anxiety. And God is giving us another way today and he's saying i want you to see something else and i want you to say something else not so that poof in an instant with a little magic wand and a nice little message from louis all this years of you know bitterness or anger or resentment that's been lighting my heart on fire is just going to vanish maybe in 30 seconds but so that you can change the soundtrack of your life and this is what paul is i mean what saw, what david is saying In Psalm 16, same David, who's taken down Goliath. This is what David is saying in Psalm 16. He says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. That's what I see. I've chosen with many adversaries to make sure that the thing that I primarily see is the Lord. I fought a bear. I fought a lion. I've been out in the wilderness. I've been through the valley of the shadow of death. I know what it's like to be alone as a teenager or a small boy with shepherd, shepherding sheep on the backside of nowhere in the middle of the night with sounds coming out of the darkness. I know what that's about, but I have chosen to set the Lord continually before me. That's saying I'm going to dictate Where my eyes go. So yes, there's a giant. Yes, the giant's nine and a half foot tall. But I'm going to lift my eyes above the giant to see something and someone greater than the giant. And so this is the choice that he made. And it's the choice that you can make and the choice that I can make. You can decide where you set your gaze. You can't decide your circumstances. You can't control your environment. You can't control your genetics. You can't control all the conditioning you got from your family. You might not even can control what's making you fearful right now or what's making you anxious right now. But you can control where you put your focus and what you see. He said, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken so I've got a God in view and I've got a God right beside me I've got God in my sights and I've got God by my side I'm gonna be okay no matter what it is that comes over the horizon it could be a diagnosis it could be a situation a relational thing it could be some darkness some internal thing some external thing but I've got the God of heaven in view and I've got the Lord Jesus Christ by my side I have God in sight, and I have God by my side. And here are the results of setting your gaze in the right place. So he just puts them out. Verse 9, three things. Therefore, my heart is glad. The first thing that's going to change when we shift our sight and shift our view is our heart is going to stabilize. <laughs> what is our heart? You mean my heart rate? Literally, probably your blood pressure will probably go down. Your heart rate may decrease slowly by putting the God of the universe in view, but really what he's saying is my emotions are gonna stabilize. I'm gonna get off the roller coaster of it's gonna work. Oh no, it's not gonna work. There's it's gonna there's gonna be a a, a, a solution. Oh no, there's not gonna be a solution. Because God isn't on a roller coaster. Life is a roller coaster, but God is steady and he's sure. And when my eyes are on the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who's the same yesterday and today and forever, who's, who's got no shifting, no turning, no changing in his nature, then it stabilizes my emotions and it steadies my heart. My heart is glad. The first thing that happens when God is solidly in my view. And I, I'm not saying I don't have a giant. I'm just choosing not to stare at my giant. I'm choosing to lift my eyes up to my God. The second thing he says happens is my tongue rejoices. When God is in view, worship is always an option. You're like, but yeah, you can't worship in this circumstance. You can if you see God in this circumstance. You can worship in this circumstance. If if the circumstance has completely clouded your view. And blocked out the God of the universe, there will be no worship. There will only be worry in your mouth. But here's the beauty. Worship and worry cannot
0: be in our mouths at the same time. Worship is not the same thing as faith. And you're turning worship into some kind of magic talisman to overcome our fears.
7: Mmm. <sighs> One displaces the other, and when you see God, you can always worship God in the darkness, in death, in the discouraging times. You still can say, but I see God. He is a good God. He's a God who gave himself for me. He's a God who
0: created me for a purpose. I know this because of the cross. I can trust him. Uh, The cross tells me I have a purpose. Because of the cross. Really?
7: And I can worship him even now. Because of what he did for me on the cross. And a song of praise can happen. I tell about it more in the book, but the the turning moment for me, the defining moment for me was the weakest, darkest night of my life to date. In the middle of this depression hole, when a little song of praise came in my heart at two in the morning and started leading me back to the light. Worship is a weapon that pierces the darkness. And leads us into the light. So, so here's the question, really. Who gave the enemy power over the playlist? Who, who said to him, hey, we're going through life and we'll just let you pick the music. And you can create the soundtrack. And you can go on Spotify and, you know, just put a playlist together for us. And we'll just track along with that playlist. We, you, have the power over the playlist in your life. You may not have power over much else in your life right now, but you've got power over the playlist. So when this dead giant called fear starts talking to you like he's dominating and alive, and all of a sudden the story is back, and you're like, here it comes again. In the middle of the night, I wake up, and I hear him telling me one more time, And what David is saying is, no, no, I actually have control
0: of the playlist. Yeah, David didn't have an iPod or a playlist or an MP3 player or a cassette, anything. Wow. So this
7: playlist is the playlist of a defeated and dead giant who, you know, thinks he has got control of my life. But at the end of the day, not so much. At the end of the day,
0: not so much. Oh, how brave of him. He's tearing up the, t- the playlist. I'm not
7: defeated. I'm not alone. I'm not going down. I'm not going to sink. This isn't a dead end street. I'm not going to die. This isn't the end of the road. I have a God who is for me and a God who is with me and a God who is greater than whatever I'm walking through. So the playlist is not in the hands of the enemy today. And so you can just simply say, there's a button that says stop and eject, but there has to be a replacement playlist in that moment. And if you don't have a ready playlist of a song of praise that amplifies the greatness of God in history and the hope of God in the future, then you're going under when the giant of fear, anxiety comes into your story, talking all the trash he's going to be talking. For The first few months of this year, my, my soundtrack was Do It Again, that elevation song. Do you know that song? I've seen you move the mountains and I believe that you will do it again, that you can do it again. Some days, March, April, May, wasn't facing anything necessarily all that daunting, but every time the enemy would maneuver, I would pull my phone out, had it on my playlist. I would click on the nine minute live version and I would just crank it up as loud as I could. And I would remember my God took down the walls of Jericho. My God parted the Red Sea. My God shut the mouths of the lions and my God came to destroy the darkness, and to take down every single giant. See, the antidote to fear is faith, and the soundtrack to faith is worship. And I don't mean music.
0: Yeah, um, I seriously doubt that an Elevation quote-unquote worship song, which is chock full of false doctrine, is going to assist me in faith faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of Christ scripture says fill your mind with the word of God uh-huh not the false doctrine of today's sketchy praise songs
7: necessarily because we know that it's truth that sets us free
0: so you got to put on which is why you need to avoid most of today's contemporary worship songs because is there, there isn't biblical truth in them, a lot of lies.
7: Soundtrack that's rooted in truth. So you don't need just have a song that says, Oh, the Lord is wonderful, and I'm wonderful, and He thinks I'm wonderful, and I think He's wonderful, and He loves me, and I love Him, and we love each other, and we are always going to love each other because I'm so wonderful. Why wouldn't He want to love someone as wonderful as me? That might be a great song for a moment, but you need a song anchored in the Word of God, in the truth of God, in the 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 historicity of God, in the faithfulness of God, in the unchanging nature of God, in the sovereign plans of God, and you need a song of hope and faith for the future. Change the soundtrack. He said, when I set the Lord in front of me, a few things happened. One, my emotions stabilized. Two, praise started coming out of my mouth. And when praise started coming out of my mouth, guess what? The the darkness turned into light. You've got the power to turn the volume down on the lies and turn the volume up on the truth. You have your hand on the playlist today and you can make that choice. But that choice is made more simply when you put God in view. Open this word, find who he is, lock your heart and your eyes on who he is. He is. You know, when David came into this valley, he's looking up at Goliath, and he's saying, "Yeah, this guy's giant." But when I was out one night with the sheep, I looked up into the universe, and I pinned the words, "Thank you very much, O oh Lord, our Lord. How majestic is Your name in all the earth?" I pinned the words, "When I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars, the work of Your fingers, what You have done, the, the moon and the stars that You have set in place, I say, What is man that You are mindful?" Of him, Even a nine and a half foot tall man, that you are mindful of him. So he came in the valley and he said, you know what I see? I don't see a giant.
0: Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the audience. Getting them to make the decision. Apparently the decision today is to change their soundtrack and their playlists so that they can overcome... The giants of fear, anxiety, and rejection, and stuff like that. Ah, Very frustrating. We continue. See a galaxy breather. I worship a
7: galaxy maker. Nine and a half feet tall is nothing compared to a galaxy maker. And then he closes with this beautiful little line, third thing. He says, and my flesh will dwell secure. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest secure. I have spent many nights this year just practicing the 23rd psalm maybe the greatest known passage in the bible and I thought I've got a shepherd he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death he is with me in the valley of the shadow of death and because he's with me I'm not going to fear any evil you know why practically because he's got a rod in one hand and a staff in the other the staff he leads me the rod He destroys my enemies. So I don't need a friend who's got my back. I've got a shepherd who's got a rod in his hand who protects me from anything that's coming to destroy his purpose in my life. And I've said many, many nights, God, I'm anxious tonight. I'm anxious again tonight, but I don't call it anxiety anymore. I dig down one layer below and I ask the question what's making me anxious? Who's making me anxious? And then I give whoever or whatever it is to my shepherd and I say will you take this will you take this situation circumstance these people this conversation this this perplexed situation over here and will you manage it will you carry it will you hold it because in your hands is power you don't need sleep tonight but I do you're not tired but I am I only see a little but you see a lot I can't change very much but you can change everything My, my abilities are limited tonight and my body is frail, but your abilities are limitless, and your power is unending. And so, God, I say to you tonight, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And so I say, the giant of fear is dead. And the giant slayer, Jesus, he's alive. And he's in this place right now. So, Lord, I pray for everybody.
0: Done. Yeah, I think you get the point. I mean, it's not like there wasn't some good things in that messed up sermon. There were a few things that were okay and true. But overall, he missed the point. And his solution, yeah, um, you know, put a playlist on from Elevation Church Music. That'll help you realize your... Goliath is dead already. (laughs) No, (laughs) that's, yeah, that's the last thing I would recommend to anybody. So, yeah, a a bit of a mess. A little bit more autobiographical than theological, and I think that's part of uh, what made that, uh, that message appealing to the people who heard it, is, is that clearly we were hearing Louis Giglio's heart and the struggles that he has. And many of the struggles that he was describing are struggle, struggles that you and I face, everyday people face. So diagnosis, yeah, correct-ish. Um, is fear a giant? No. Is depression a giant? No. It's not, um, not in the way he's looking. And yes, Christ is, the, uh, is really the stand-in, there, yeah, David is the stand-in for Christ, but yeah, Goliath doesn't represent those things, and so still ends up missing the point and engaging in kind of, um, yeah, uh, not intentional narcissism, but still a form of it. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.